So it is fitting to um, conclude the end of the year with the end of the Old Testament. We have spent December walking through the Psalms, and we want to um, focus our attention on a weightier matter um, as we go into the new year. So as you're finding Malachi, I want to set the stage for um, where we are, since we are going to be in chapter 3. So Malachi is written, um, and it is believed that he is a contemporary of Nehemiah. So if you remember Nehemiah, he came back uh, into Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall and to set people um, on the path of following God once more. Their um, exile is ending. He is coming back. Um, he has been sent with a blessing um, from the, the king of the world at the time, um, the king of Persia, and uh, coming back. And so Malachi is believed to have been written around the same time. So the issues that Nehemiah is dealing with, with people neglecting the temple, people neglecting the wall, people neglecting to follow um, the ways of Yahweh, Malachi is written. And um, Malachi begins with writing the words of the Lord. And in chapter one, God reminds Israel that he loves them. So he starts off this prophecy, reminding the people of his love for them. And then God moves into talking to the priests and calling out their sin and how they are sinning against him. They are offering sacrifices that people are bringing, but they are permitting lame sacrifices, um, sick animals, um, broken animals, animals that God had forbidden. God had said, you need to bring the best of the animals, and the priests are neglecting all of that and allowing people to bring whatever they wanted to bring. And then God moves into condemning the priests for this and cursing them and proclaiming a curse upon them for their profanity and the way that they are um, an abomination before the Lord and allowing these sins to continue. Then he moves into judgment upon the people of Israel uh, and condemning them for their continued profanity and their continued abomination um, and how they are living their lives and not following after the Lord. And then chapter 2 concludes with a promise of the coming messenger who will come and he will bring judgment, but then he will also bring righteousness and hope and peace and purity back into the priesthood and back into Israel as well. And then chapter 3, the first five verses is where we find that, but then chapter uh, verse 5 God pronounces judgment on sorcerers and judgment on idolaters and judgment on sinners and evil and on the abominations. And so then we pick up with verse 6 through 12, which is our text this morning. So with that as the background, I invite you to stand, uh, if you are able, for the reading of God's word from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Malachi writes these words of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we seek after your wisdom. We seek after your glory. Father, may your presence be with us. May you convict us of sin. May you fill us with a desire for Jesus Christ and him alone. Through this morning, may you be glorified in everything that is said. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So verse 5, after God declares his judgment, verse 5 ends with this statement. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 6 picks up, for I, the Lord, do not change. So God is pronouncing judgment upon the sins of Israel, but then says, do not fear me, for I, the Lord, do not change. We see in Psalm 102, verse 27, the psalmist says, but you are the same and your years have no end. And over and over again in the scriptures, we see that God is an unchanging God. God doesn't change. He doesn't He's not fickle like the other gods of the other nations. And if you've studied um, the mythologies and the histories of the other nations, um, especially in particular the Greek and Romans, you'll know that their gods are very fickle. And their gods in one moment can, um, can be kind-hearted and full of blessings, and then the next moment for no reasons full of wrath and vengeance, and are very human in their natures and very human in their emotional sways and swings, and sometimes they seem bipolar at times. Uh, but God is not like that at all. God does not change. And because God does not change, God tells Israel that they do not need to fear him and says, therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God pronounces judgment and then says, because God is not changing, because he is unchanging, they are not consumed. The peace and comfort of this we can see in, Lamenta in Lamentations chapter 3. We read, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The love of the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God begins his prophecy, his condemnation, and his proclamation to the people of Israel with his love. He reminds them of his love. And even after uh, pronouncing hard statements, he reminds them, you don't need to fear me. I don't change. And so therefore, you are not consumed. It is a call to remember that God is faithful and that God's promises endure even in the midst of judgment, and even in the midst of um, what seems like us a harsh reality, we can rest upon the fact 
that God does not change. Regardless of what we see in chapter 7, God does not change. For in, not chapter 7, verse 7. In verse 7, God says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So God doesn't change regardless of the fact that the people have not kept the law. The people have been unfaithful from the times of their forefathers. They have been unfaithful and unfaithful and unfaithful all the way until the very end of the Old Testament. Israel has been unfaithful, and yet God does not change, and his mercies remain. He has not wiped them out. He did not go the way of Noah and send a flood and destroy them. He said to Moses, kind of at the beginning of of it all, um, look at your people, Moses. Look at what they are doing. They've built a golden calf, and they're worshiping this calf and claiming that this calf is their God that brought them out. I should destroy them. And Moses called upon the faithfulness of God. God, what will the nation say? You can't go back on your promise. What will the nation say of of you, of your name? And we see that God has been faithful over and over and over again throughout the history of the Old Testament. Even now, we see in Acts 7.51, Stephen, what got him stoned, he says, to the council that is there, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. The attitude of Israel didn't change in the 400 years from the writing of Malachi to the coming of Christ. Nothing changed in their heart. Nothing changed in their attitude. Yet God's faithfulness remained You are not consumed, is what the Lord promises Israel, because of his faithfulness, regardless of what they've done. And then we see God's call. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Hosea 6.1, we read, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Notice the language that Hosea uses. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. God has brought judgment upon us. God has brought condemnation upon us. And it is awful. We have been ripped apart. But he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. So this promise, even in the midst of judgment, this promise that God will raise them up and bind them and heal them. And here in Malachi, God says, return to me and I will return to you. We see the faithfulness of Yahweh in Jonah. Jonah had no desire to go to Nineveh whatsoever because he knew that if he went to Nineveh and the people repented, God would relent of his judgment And Jonah wanted the Ninevites destroyed. He wanted them dead. So he's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to go. That way they don't repent. That way God kills them all. That'll be a great day. But as we know, Jonah and the big fish, God wanted the message declared to Nineveh. And what happened? Jonah declared that in 10 days from now, you will be destroyed. And the people repented and God relented. And Jonah was angry. Jonah ends 
with Jonah pouting and throwing a temper tantrum that God did not destroy the Ninevites and God relented because God is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. Regardless of the sin that had been committed, God says, I am faithful. Return to me and I will return to you. But then at the end of verse 7, we read the people's response. But you say, how shall we return? Now, this response is not, okay, I want to return, but I don't know how. Let me know how. That's not what the people are saying. The people, by saying, how shall we return, is them saying, we haven't done anything wrong. We've been keeping your law. We've been keeping your statutes. We've been doing everything that you want us to. So how in the world can we return if we've never left? That's what the people are saying, and that's clearly not what God is saying. God is saying, you have gone. You have turned aside. You have strayed. You haven't kept my statutes. So we read in Hosea 6, just six verses later from Hosea 6.1, or five verses later. Hosea writes, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's concern is not that they keep the letter of the law. God's concern is with their heart. Yes, you've been sacrificing animals. But what kinds of animals have you been sacrificing? You've been sacrificing the lame animals, the sick animals, the unhealthy animals, the animals that are of no value to you. Therefore, that's what you bring to me. You're not bringing me your best animal. You're not bringing me the first fruits of your crops. You're bringing me the leftovers. In Hosea, God says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wants his people to love him, to follow him, to know him. And out of that love and out of that knowledge, then they bring the sacrifices and the offerings. If they just bring just the offerings, he doesn't care about that. It means absolutely nothing to him. He cares about the heart. We see that in Stephen's uh, message in what we just read in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. So even Stephen recognized it's not about keeping the letter of the law. It's about the heart. Where is your heart in all of this? So, and we read that over and over and over in the Old Testament. God cares about the heart. When people say, yeah, you know, the Old Testament is just full of rules and regulations and laws. And um, yeah, it's all legalism in the Old Testament, but we love the New Testament. It's not. It is not that is far from the truth and that is a misreading. If you read the Old Testament and the only thing you get is I have to do this and I have to do that and I can't do that and I can't do that, you've missed the point. The point is God wants our hearts to change. And here at the end of verse 7, it is very clear that the people haven't gotten that. How shall we return to you? We've never left you. So then God continues in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So this statement, will man rob God? John Calvin believes that translating it this way as the ESV did is wrong. 
John Calvin says that the proper way to translate it would be, um, will man rob the gods? Um, based on the Hebrew, that's the, the word that's used, it could be translated either way as God or the gods. And John Calvin says that the proper understanding of this is to say that will man rob the gods? In other words, the pagans don't even rob their own gods. Yet you're robbing me, declares Yahweh. So not even the pagans will do this, but you're doing this to me. They're false gods. I am the one true God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who provided for you in the wilderness, who has provided for you over and over and over again. And yet you're doing what even the pagans won't do, which we see Paul declaring as well in the New Testament, that Paul declaring to the Corinthians that they are doing things that even the Gentiles won't do um, within the church. So this attitude is an abomination. So regardless of whether I haven't looked into the Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I don't know if John Calvin's right or the translators of the ESV are right, but the point is the same. Regardless of how you translate it, what they are doing is an abomination before the Lord. How dare you rob from God is what God is saying. He is appalled at the actions that they are taking. But you say, how have we robbed you? Again, this idea of, we're not doing anything to you. We haven't committed any sins. We're doing everything we're supposed to. And God says, in your tithes and in your contributions. So here, in tithes and contributions, we see that God had set up a system to provide for the tribe of Levi. When Israel entered into the promised land and they conquered the promised land, God divided up the whole promised land between 11 of the 12 tribes. All 11 tribes got a section of land that was their land to harvest. It was their land to profit off of. It was their land to control. The Levites got nothing because the Levites were priests. They were to administer the sacrifices. They were to be the spiritual head of Israel. They were to lead the people in worshiping. And so all of the other 11 tribes were to give tithes and contributions and offerings, and that would provide for the tribe of Levi. And yet here we see they're not even doing that. And notice the language that God uses. God says, you are robbing me. He didn't say you're robbing the Levites. You're you're robbing my people. He says, you're robbing me. God had a system set up that Israel was to follow as an act of worship, as an act of love. Again, God's concerned with the heart. God's concerned with the motivation behind what people are doing and why they're doing it. Not that they are strictly fulfilling it, but here we see they're not even fulfilling this. They aren't being loving. They aren't being kind. And I had a quote from Nehemiah, but it got deleted out of here. So I'm going to read it off of the screen up here. Uh, Nehemiah 13.10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So Nehemiah, contemporary of Malachi, is saying that the Levites aren't even doing their job, as we've seen Um, briefly. At the beginning of Malachi, they're doing it wrong. The the priests are offering wrong sacrifices. But even then, they're not even really fulfilling their job because they're out in the fields working. 
because Israel isn't bringing in the tithe. Now, we don't see here the exact reason, and many have speculated. It could have been greed. It could have been uh, mistrust. It could have just been ignorance uh, of the law because a lot of time had gone by without really anybody teaching the law accurately. There could have been multiple different reasons, but those reasons don't matter because God says you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing, and therefore you are robbing from me. You aren't bringing the tithes and offerings to provide for the Levites as I commanded you to do. And then God says in verse 9, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. In other words, there is not a single one of you who is out excuse. And therefore, you are cursed with a curse. In Malachi chapter 2, we read God speaking to the priests. He says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, again, God's concerned with the heart here. If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. So God here in verse 9 of chapter 3 is saying, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me because they haven't taken the law of God to heart. They aren't concerned with listening to God. They aren't concerned with giving honor to the name of God. And so God has cursed them. But now we come back to God's promise in verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God picks this back up in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Which is what God is saying here at the beginning of verse 10. Bring the full tithe into your store, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Again, God is concerned with the people honoring him and obeying him and following him and doing what he commands. God is concerned with their actions, but he is concerned with the attitudes of their hearts as well. Because then he concludes in verse 10, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, over and over again in the Old Testament, we read God says, don't put me to the test. Don't test the Lord. Don't do that. But here, God is saying, put me to the test in this. You don't believe me? You don't believe that I'm going to provide for you? All right, put me to the test. We'll see what I provide for you. We'll see what happens. Proverbs verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with new wine. God affirms this statement from Proverbs. Put me to the test and see whether or not I will bless you and whether or not I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Verses 11 and 12, we continue to read 
the outflowing of the promise of God, of putting him to the test. I will rebuke the devourer for you. This devourer, um, the, the word, we don't have a word in English for it, but it would be a pest or a pestilence, something that is destroying their crops. Their crops. So God brought something in, cursed them. It could have been locusts. It could have been some disease that was ravaging their crops. We don't fully know. But God will rebuke the devourer for them so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So the point of the tithe is twofold in that we see in the Old Testament. One, it was to provide for the Levites. That was God's way that he structured everything so that the Levites would focus on serving the Lord, on fulfilling the law, on teaching the law to the people, on offering the sacrifices, on representing the people before the Lord and being that intermediary, that mediator for them. That was their job. And Israel was to bring the tithes in so that they could do that. And we see in Nehemiah, they couldn't do that. So they were out in the fields, working the fields because they needed, to, they needed food, they needed to eat. No one was bringing anything for them. That was all breaking down. So that's the first thing that we see. The first point of the tithe was to provide for the Levites. The second was to call the people to trust in God, that God will provide for them. He challenges them here, put me to the test, which is not every day that God says that. But here he says it, put me to the test and I will prove to you that I will provide for you. So much so that all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. God's concern is with the heart and why people are doing the things that they are doing. And he wanted them to bring the tithe as an act of worship, as an act of obedience to the Lord. So now the question is, okay, that's great. That's under the Old Testament, but we're under the New Testament, are we not? Didn't Christ fulfill all the laws of the Old Testament? So... There are many who argue that the tithe was done away with in Christ because in the New Testament, we don't see an explicit command that you shall tithe. Um, Not only that, tithe means a tenth. So one-tenth of your produce, one-tenth of what you bring in, you are to tithe to the Lord. So we don't see a command for to tithe one-tenth. We don't see a command to tithe 10%. So What do we do with this then in light of the absence of an explicit command like we have here in Malachi? Well, we can look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, without neglecting the others. So here, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for not fulfilling the entire law. They are tithing, which he says you ought to do. And that Greek word is much stronger than simply ought. It's you must, you should, you need to. The whole weight and force behind all of those words is implied in that one Greek word, ought. You ought to have done 
without neglecting the others. So yes, you need to do justice and mercy and faithfulness without neglecting the tithes and offerings as well. But again, the argument can be made. Okay, well, but he's talking to the Pharisees who are under the law right now. So does that still apply to us now? Well, let's move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We can see in verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you, so, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So here, Paul is commanding the Corinthian church, just like he told the, all the churches in Galatia and the Galatia region, that they are to collect money for the saints. They are to set aside a portion the first day of every week. He doesn't say how much, but he does say you are to set aside a portion the first day of every week, each of you, for the collection of the saints. And then in 2 Corinthians, we don't have time, but all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, over and over and over again in those two chapters, we see this theme continuing of giving, of giving to the church, of giving to the saints, of giving of our proceeds over and over again. I want us to look just at chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. So here we see Paul saying, hey, you've said that you're going to give. You've promised that you are going to give. So I'm sending brothers ahead of me, you know, to make sure that you're fulfilling your promise, to make sure you're not going to back out on that. But Paul, just like God, is concerned with their heart. He says, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to give cheerfully, joyously, not under compulsion. Again, God's concerned with the heart of the matter because if we give under compulsion. If we give unwillingly, but I'm going to give anyway. I don't want to, but I'm going to give it anyway. We're no different than Israel and Malachi, where they're just going through these actions. God says in Hosea, I don't care about sacrifices. I don't care about burnt offerings. I care about your heart. I want your heart to be focused on me, to you give out of a love for me. So, Is there an explicit command to tithe? No. But we do see this command to give and to give joyously because God loves a cheerful giver. We see a command to give regularly. 
We see a command to that uh, Paul says here, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Again, this is capturing this idea from Malachi when God says, put me to the test and see that I will bless you. You might not want to give, but give. Focus your heart on me. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So God's challenge that he is giving to in Malachi still applies to us today. Now, John 10, 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So yes, Jesus came that we might have spiritual life, that we might be born again, absolutely. But he came also that we might have abundant life. And the promises of God in Malachi, when we put him to the test and we give, and God will pour his blessings out on us, is I will give you abundant life here and now as well. Now, don't hear me say what the health, wealth, prosperity gospel says of you give to God and God will bless you with tenfold the money. I watched on one of the, it might have been TBN, one of those uh, religious networks, um, some, some guy was saying, the first time I gave a dollar, it felt good. Then first time I gave $10, yeah, that felt better. Then I gave $100 and yeah, that was really good. Then the first time I gave that $1,000, woo boy, that was just fantastic. That is not what I'm saying here at all. Don't hear me say that. That, I believe, is blasphemous to call out. Everybody must write $1,000 checks all the time and everything. A friend of mine in college, she worked for a, a phone tree company that people would call in and whatever phone number it was, the script would pop up on that screen for that company and she would have to read the script one of the companies that contracted with, with the company that she worked for was some tele-evangelist network or whatever, and she was talking to this one woman. She read the script, and the woman's like, I'm just so happy I'm giving my last $1,000 because I had to give like, it's like 10000 or 15000 however many thousands of dollars it was. And then once she gave all of that, then God's blessings would come out, and so this was her last $1,000 check that she was writing. And so my friend quit working there after that. Um, but um, yeah, that is not what we are saying here. That is not what God is saying here. God is saying, I want your heart. I want you to be faithful. I want you to trust me. I want your affections to be focused on me. I want you to be obedient, but I want you to be obedient out of love for me and out of a knowledge and understanding of me. We have a book on our bookshelf in our library called George Mueller, Delighted in God. If you have not read that, I strongly encourage you to read it. There's a biography of a man named George Mueller who lived in the 1800s in England. He was a pastor of a church and he felt a strong conviction to live his life 100% in complete faith and surrender to God. So he stopped taking a salary from the church. He also stopped collecting the tithe in the church. Um, it was a very common practice and in that time to have pew rentals. So 
They didn't have microphones. They didn't have speakers. And in a lot of these churches, people would be sitting far back. So you could rent a space closer to the front um, every year. So you would pay your rental fee. That's how the church also got money. He did away with all of that. They put a box near the entrance of the church, told the people one time, if you feel called to give, give in that box. Never mention it again. He lived his, his entire life, never asking for donations, never asking for money from anything, never taking a paycheck, never taking a salary from the church. Because he wanted to prove to his church and he wanted to prove to Christianity as a whole that we have a faithful God who will provide for our needs. And his life and testimony is one that is absolutely convicting. There were many mornings they would wake up and they wouldn't have any food for breakfast. They would hear a knock at the door. They'd open it up and no one would be there, but there would be a basket of food on their doorstep. So God constantly provided for them. And in fact, he was able to start an orphanage and at its max capacity had 3,000 orphans in it. And not once did he ask for donations. Not once did he pass an offering plate for any of that. It was all by faith and prayer. He dedicated his entire life to proving to his church and Christianity that God is trustworthy and God is faithful. And that's what God says here in Malachi. Put me to the test. See that I will provide for you. There are many reasons that we don't give. And as I was trying to think through a lot of them, it kind of boiled them down to just two categories. Um, One is just simply being unaware. There may be people that never really been taught that we should tie, that we should give, that we should do this. There are those, ah, I, I know that it's a thing, but I've never really seen it live, lived out. So you just don't think about it. Um, well, now it's presented to you that it is important to God that we do give and we do give faithfully and we do give regularly. So if you've been unaware, pray about it. Pray that God would make you more aware and bring it to your mind because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves somebody who gives faithfully. God is concerned about our hearts. The other category is refusal. People refuse to give for many different reasons. Out of fear, out of lack of trust, out of the hardness of their own hearts. And towards the hardness of our own hearts of, yeah, I don't really think that there's giving. When I was doing research on this, there are a lot of different websites and there's a lot of different people that say that you should never give a dime at all. And that is absolutely unbiblical. And um, they're saying that it's unbiblical to give a a dime, to which I say it's unbiblical not to. Um, And um, it is very clear based on the arguments that they are making that their hearts are hardened. And... um, Yeah, if anybody's heart is that way, I pray that you would read the scriptures, research in the scriptures. Don't just take my word up here for it, but read the scriptures for yourself. Read 2 Corinthians um, chapters 8 and 9. Read through those. Um, Study the word of God and see what God has to say about it. But I tell you that God does care tremendously about the fact of whether we give or not. I also understand that finances are tight for most people. And so there is a sense of fear in that if I give, I'm not going to have any way to 
um, to support myself. Um, which is why I'm not up here saying you must give a certain dollar amount or you must give exactly 10%. I believe 10% is a good target to get to. Um, but I'm not going to lay that burden on anybody. I don't see that burden being laid on anybody in the New Testament in particular. Um, so I'm not going to throw that out there. But I am going to challenge you to pray about it. Because a fear of saying, if I give money to God, then I won't have money for what I need. That is basically saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust that you will supply for my needs. I don't believe that you are faithful to your promises. While we may not think that our actions, that is what they are saying when we say, I won't give to God. Because that's what God says here in Malachi, put me to the test and I will prove to you that I will bless you. George Mueller believed it so much that he dedicated his entire life to live 100% by faith. And God provided for his needs over and over and over again. Stories throughout all of history show that God is faithful. Throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and all the way up until today, God is faithful to provide. Doesn't mean you're going to be a millionaire. Doesn't mean you're going to walk out the door and a check is going to fall out of a bird's mouth into your hands for um, $20,000. But it does mean God's going to provide for you. God's going to meet your needs. Whatever those needs are, God is going to meet them. Not necessarily our wants. Wants and needs are two different things. Wants and needs often get blurred, especially if you listen to commercials and all marketing here in America. Um, so uh, one of my um, professors, he was down in, um, in Ecuador, and he was in this little souvenir shop, and he, there was a blowgun that was there. And he was picking up, looking at it and stuff. And the woman said, said, Oh, you need this. You need to buy this. He's like, no, no, I, I don't, I don't need this. And she's like, no, no, you need this. He's like, no, I, I really don't. I live in America. I don't need a blowgun. Uh, she's like, no, no. She put a dart in there. It was like, blow it. So he blew it and it flew straight across the room, stuck into the wall. And he went, Oh yeah, I need this. And so then he, and then, so then he bought it. So there's a difference between need and want. That was definitely like, Oh, that's really cool. I want this. Um, but we often blur those lines, and it, it can become very easy to blur those lines. And so if finances are tight and you do have a concern, then as your pastors here at Redeemer, we don't just want to say, hey, step out in faith. All right, go now in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. No, 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 no. We want to give opportunity for this. We encourage people if you are struggling with sin, if you're struggling with lust, addiction, if you're struggling with anxiety or anything else, meet with each other. Confess your sins one to another because that is biblical. We want you to build each other up as iron sharpens iron. Encourage each other to look at the scriptures. Cast your fears and anxieties upon the Lord and trust in Him in all aspects of life. And so we want to do that too with finances. And so if finances are a struggle, then we've got a sign-up sheet in the back. You can write your name down. And we've got some people in this church who are savvy financiers and love to budget. And they will sit with you and they will meet with you and they'll walk through your budget. 
and they'll find ways that you can save and kind of talk through things. It may be hard. It may be saying, like, do you really need this? Do you really, is this a necessity or is this a, a desire? Um, but they will walk through and find ways to save. When Lindsay and I were dating, I wanted to propose to her. And um, one of the leaders in the singles ministry at the church I was at, his name was Adam. I went up to him and said, I want to propose, but I have no idea how I'm going to be able to buy a ring. I don't have the money to buy it outright. I don't even have the money to make monthly payments. He's like, well, what's your budget like? I said, I don't really have a budget. I just, I know what bills I have and expenses that I have. He's like, all right, print out your bank statements. (laughs) We're going to sit down together. So I printed a couple months worth of bank statements out and sat down to him. And we started going through them line by line and came and it was absolutely mind boggling. I was infuriated with myself. Single guy. We'd go out to eat as singles all the time. I'd eat cheap. Dollar menu at McDonald's or other, or as cheap as I could get at other places. I was constantly looking at the price of food, saying, that's too much. What can I get away with that would still fill me up? I was trying to spend as little money as possible, but still eating out. I thought I was spending 20 to $30, maybe 40 at most on a kind of random month. I was spending $100 a month eating out just myself. I was disgusted, in, but I had no idea. I had no idea. It took Adam sitting down with me, going through, and it, that wasn't the only area. We found other areas that I was able to rearrange habits and stuff, and then lo and behold, I was able to afford monthly payments for an engagement ring for, for Lindsay. And um, so there are ways to save. It may be that finances really are tight and you are doing everything you can, and there is nothing more that you can give. God cares about your heart. God doesn't care about sacrifices. He doesn't care about burnt offerings. He cares about your heart. And if you are faithfully giving whatever you can, God is pleased with that because God loves a cheerful giver. Put God to the test. Put him to the test. See if he will bless you. See if his blessings will skip over you or not. God is faithful to his promises. We read that at the very beginning in Uh, Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So church family, the challenge this morning is to give of our first fruits. The challenge this morning is to trust that what the Lord says is true and that what the Lord says is good. We cast ourselves upon him We trust in him. In all our ways, we acknowledge him. We don't lean on our own understandings. And God says, God promises that if we do that, he will make our path straight. Let's pray.